Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Each year in the United States, roughly 100,000 young adults experience a psychotic episode, including perhaps hearing voices or seeing hallucinations. Treating those episodes early on can prevent some of the worst outcomes of mental illness, such as homelessness or not being able to hold down a job. The National Institute of Mental Health has outlined what experts call a gold standard for early treatment of psychosis, but access to that care is often unavailable or not covered by insurance. KQED health reporter April Domboski has been doing some deep reporting on the issue included in an episode of California Report magazine. She joined us to share some of the stories of the people she met and tell us what she learned about these systemic barriers. Welcome to the show, April. Thanks for having me. So why don't we start with you just kind of introducing us to one of the people that you interviewed and met um, in your work. Tell us about Yvonne. Yeah, Yvonne is a young woman I met who first started experiencing psychotic symptoms when she was in college. And, you know, most psychotic illnesses do appear in late adolescence or early adulthood. So it's pretty common for people when they first leave home, they're out on their own, they're maybe staying up late um, is when they first experience their symptoms. And so for Yvonne and others, these symptoms often start small and they come on slowly. So we'll hear a little bit from Yvonne describing this. It started as calling my name. I'd hear my name, and I was confused. And one day in her anatomy class, she was sitting in a big lecture hall when she got a funny feeling. The teacher was lecturing, and all of a sudden, it's, I thought the teacher was talking about my body. I'm like, why is he telling the class about, about me? Why is, why is he talking about my kidneys? How dare he? And I got really scared, and I ran out of the class. So this is really similar to a lot of stories that I heard. You know, it starts with a a funny feeling, you have a sense that something is kind of off. And from here, Yvonne started to hear voices. First, it was background chatter, but then it was, you know, voices speaking in full sentences. And then eventually, it got even worse. She started having some delusions, believing that aliens were coming to abduct her or that, you know, God was talking to her and, you know, wanted her to save the world. Mm. Sometimes when you hear stories like this, I think the assumption is that someone who is kind of going down this path is probably going to experience really debilitating mental illness for their life, right? I mean, I think that's at least the the mental model a lot of people have. Is that is that true? I mean, I think for a long time that was a model that doctors even had. And I think for, you know, especially a lot of us living in California, we have a pretty visual sense of, you know, what we think of as psychosis, maybe seeing folks on the street, unable to care for themselves, you know, walking in traffic. And that's where we put a lot of our resources, you know, helping people in crisis. And, you know, part of the reason I wanted to look into this topic was because I wanted to know what does this illness look like 
20 or 30 years earlier? And how does the trajectory of the illness change? If people get into treatment right away, what if we invest, you know, the kind of resources, you know, into treatments when people are young in college, you know, having their first symptoms? You know, this is something as a health reporter, we know with other illnesses like diabetes and cancer, the sooner people get into care, the better they do. And the same is true of psychotic illness. And, you know, what I discovered in the reporting is that, you know, people can recover completely from a first psychotic episode. You know, that there is a, a whole different range of, of outcomes, um, you know, not just the worst that we tend to that yeah. tend to stick in our minds. Yeah. I um, just want to note for everyone that when we're introducing some of the people from April's reporting, their voices and their names have both been altered uh, to protect their privacy, just so you know. We're talking about early intervention care for people experiencing psychosis. We've got April Demboski, health correspondent with KQED News here in Studio B with me. I want to add a couple of other voices who are working on the front lines of this treatment. Adriana Furzara is an early psychosis division director at the Felton Institute. Thanks for joining us this morning, Adriana. Good morning. Thanks for having me. We also have Tara Neendam, who's vice chair for research and executive director at the UC Davis Early Psychosis Programs. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Alexis. And we'd also love to hear from you. Have you or a loved one had an experience with psychosis? And what did, were you able to access treatment? What kind of treatment was helpful? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can email your comments or questions to the forum at kqed.org. You can find us on all the social media things at KQED Forum. Um, Tara Needham, I wanted to ask you, can you maybe give us a definition of like, what is psychosis and what do we know about what causes it? So psychosis is a mental health condition um, in which an individual begins to have unusual experiences. And I think it's really important for us to acknowledge that this exists um, on a continuum with normal human experience. And now some listeners may be going, wait, wait a second, what? I've never heard of psychosis as being normal. So hang on one minute. And, and I really think that that's an important message. And so the examples I like to give are, you know, have you ever thought you heard or felt your cell phone going off when it was not going off? Or thought that you saw some shadowy figure out of the corner of your eye? Um, or maybe after the passing of a loved one, thought you smelled their perfume or um, felt a sh like a hand on your shoulder during the funeral. These are all times when our senses, our mind is creating something that isn't really there. And usually for us, it happens when we're tired or when we're stressed and we brush it off. It doesn't you know, really bother us. And because it happens to so many people, we're all like, meh, that's normal. You should get some more sleep. Um, but for folks with psychosis, it starts to happen more often. Or maybe the experiences change. Um, like instead of hearing your name being called when nobody's there, which again, we would think of as normal, um, maybe you start hearing other words or whispers mm. or laughter or you have thoughts that 
maybe somebody might be knowing what you're thinking or, or maybe watching you, mm-hmm. but you're not totally sure. And because these things happen more often, we begin to make meaning out of them. That's what we do as humans. Mm-hmm. We are meaning makers. And so um, these things evolve either in their intensity or their frequency, sort of like the um, example that April gave, where then the person is really upset about what is happening and then they stop going to class or they stop using their phone or mm. it, it gets in the way. Tara, when, when we say they're like just colloquially, you know, that someone's had a psychotic break, where does that occur in this kind of timeline that you're laying out here from just kind of hearing maybe an occasional voice to what might be called a psychotic break? Um, so for us where, well, first of all, I don't like psychotic break. People aren't broken, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but where that really comes from is a break with reality. And, and what I think is so hard about that is, is that, um, that idea of what is real and what is not is often very subjective. Mm -hmm. And so for me as a practitioner in this space, I really try to look at things that, Um, are causing the person intense distress or and really affecting their day-to-day functioning. Mm -hmm. Like they are no longer going to school. They aren't socializing with people. They are so distressed that um, they need to be with a loved one at all times because of the concerns that they're having. Those are the signs for me that this has gotten to a point where someone is needing intervention. Um, And those interventions can be quite broad. Um, But I think in the, you know, old terms, it was really this idea of your reality is not my reality and therefore it is abnormal. And therefore we should do something to fix that. Mm. And I think as we have come to understand the broadness of people's realities, um, it, it makes it, um, more challenging to say what is abnormal. Um, so one of my one of my most common questions is why isn't the medium considered psychotic? Mm. Um, she has these experiences talking to dead people. Why don't we give her some medication? And I say, mm. well, she's functioning just fine. She's not distressed, mm. you know. Um, and and her um, the things that she does are part of um, our cultural norms. Mm. Mm. So. Um, that's yeah. sort of how I define the point at which someone would really benefit from comprehensive treatment. Yeah. You know, April, in your reporting, you encountered people struggling with kind of misdiagnosis or not being able to access this help right away. Why don't you kind of keep us going on Yvonne's story as she tried to access some care? Yeah. So, um, you know, I th- uh it took a while for Yvonne to really land in a place where, first of all, she even knew what her diagnosis was. Um, she had been um, in and out of the hospital a couple times before she got an accurate diagnosis. And then even when she did have a diagnosis, she was had trouble, you know, getting meaningful care and therapy. So she had a therapist but one who didn't necessarily have training or expertise in psychosis. And so she described, you know, wanting to talk about her voices and the distress that she was feeling around her voices. And she felt like her therapist just kind of changed the subject instead. Um, I talked to another woman. um, Her name is Marie. And she had actually, you know, been seeing a therapist for a long time. She had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder 
But at a certain point, she started experiencing some psychotic symptoms that were kind of creeping in. Uh, She read a book about Buddhism, and it just, you know, completely took over her thoughts. She started skipping school because she believed she needed to, you know, meditate every day to attain nirvana. And the whole time, she was seeing a therapist. Mm -hmm. You know, her therapist, I think, just uh, took her symptoms to mean that she was taking drugs. And so it took months for her to, you know, end up in the hospital. Yeah, Uh, We're talking about Early Intervention Care for People Experiencing Psychosis with April Domboski, health correspondent with KQED News, Tara Neendam, Vice Chair for Research and Executive Director of the UC Davis Early Psychosis Program. And we also want to talk with Adriana Furizawa, Early Psychosis Division Director at the Felton Institute. Adriana, can you tell me a little bit about your approach to care at the Felton Institute and how it might be different from you know, what April is describing um, Yvonne experienced? One way of talking about our approach to care um, is by starting with uh, what would be the person's goals beyond symptom relief. One of the things that we learned that stands true is that uh, stigma related to mental health or mental health challenges uh, is so prevalent, is so strong that many times uh, that is the biggest barrier to engaging in care. So if you imagine a young person who is uh, who may be experiencing all these challenges, not being able to tell um, their own reality as they experience uh, from what other people are experiencing, then we need to have a good way of actually getting their buy-in to treatment. So what we have learned about early psychosis uh, intervention. Uh, There is a term for this called coordinated specialty care for early psychosis. And um, we have a combination of research supported interventions that include low dose um, uh, antipsychotic medications, but also specialized psychotherapy, cognitive uh, behavioral therapy for psychosis, uh, family education, family support, uh, and also family interventions. We have, we can never forget that that young person has a life, has a life beyond their uh, mental health challenges. Family is important. Their social uh, circles are important. The community that they are a part of also play a role in supporting their recovery. And also uh, supported employment and education. Uh, That young person may be going to school, may be already in college. They may have a job and life is not going to stop because they are experiencing psychosis and they are engaging in in mental health treatment. And also all these services, all those interventions, they are delivered um, uh, by a team, a multidisciplinary team. The care is person-centered. So the person really has a big say on what uh, what feels okay for them, uh, what doesn't, and the role of the team is to continuously educate them on resources and to continue to support them in reaching their goal. Mm. Uh, so shared decision-making is a part of it and mm-hmm. strong community partnerships. And April, this kind of treatment is what Marie got, right? Uh, actually, Marie did not get this oh. kind of treatment. Marie... Um, uh, she didn't have access to one of these programs, which is something that, you know, um, 
Tara and Adriana can both talk about there there really aren't enough slots out there for the number of people who need them. Um, and, you know, in part because of the way things are paid for or not paid for. Um, but Eventually, Marie did end up working at one of these programs, offering the kinds of services that Adriana is describing. So in addition to the family support and the job and school support, a lot of these programs also have um, what's called a peer specialist. So someone who themselves has a personal experience with psychosis, who has, you know, found a way to manage their symptoms, and now is like a coach or even a buddy, someone who can sit by the person's side, can relate to them. You know, they they totally get it, you know, when everything else around everyone else around you just doesn't understand what your experience is. Um, and so um, so that's the, the role that Marie plays. And I think we even have um, some tape from her, you know, kind of describing what that's like. I've worked with some families that have told me that like I am an inspiration for them you know that I was able to manage my symptoms and get better I I think that would have been life-changing it's like I believed I wouldn't get better and it would have been life-changing to see someone who got better say that I could so so that's an example you know of um you know Marie talking about her she kind of had to struggle through her recovery on her own and and she did but it was it was a really long and lonely road. Yeah. You know, one of our listeners, Greg, writes in to say, My son had two episodes over the past four years. He started to believe in artificial intelligence conspiracy theories. He was diagnosed with bipolar one. We took him to the emergency room. The key is medication management. He's now on a low dose antipsychotic and is able to hold down a job. The National Association of Mental Health Illness is a very good organization for support for parents. You know, Tara. Um, you know, we we heard the notice of uh, medication there uh, from Greg as being a really core component. Is is that how you see it? Or do you see it as kind of like one piece of this picture here? Yes, um, I see it as one piece of the picture. I think that um, there's we can give someone medication and that can help them to manage their symptoms better. But as um, Adriana was saying, a lot of it is also about learning skills and to manage one's symptoms, to understand what is stressing you out or what is causing you difficulty, you're triggering your symptoms and how to better manage that. And then the family piece. Families are so critical. And I mean family, however you define it. It can be chosen family. Um, you know, but having that support network, people to catch you when you are struggling, to remind you that they, you can use your skills or, hey, did you remember to take your meds today? And then providing support for those family members because that's a really tough job. Yeah. If we don't support the whole person, the whole family, um, meds will not be enough. Um, and we will continue to see people struggle. We're talking about the importance of early intervention for people experiencing psychosis. We've got a great panel. We'll be back with more right after the break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, 
from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the importance of early intervention for people experiencing psychosis. Joined by April Domboski, health correspondent with KQED News here in the studio. And on the line, we've got Adriana Furizawa, Early Psychosis Division Director with the Felton Institute. Tara Needham, uh, Vice Chair for Research and Executive Director at the UC Davis Early Psychosis Programs. We're going to get to some of your calls and comments in this segment. And we want to bring in Mike, a family support specialist with the Felton Institute Early Psychosis Program. Mike's son had psychosis and went through one of these early interventions. Thank you so much for joining us, Mike. Uh, Thank you very much for having me. Mike, can you tell us your son's story and how you were able to get him some early intervention? Certainly. The... My son came to me uh, one morning with a description of his symptoms, saying that he believed that he had schizophrenia, but he felt he was going to be okay. And at that point, I made the biggest mistake of my life. I contacted a family therapist who recommended that we take him to the emergency room and uh, have him 5150, which is a 72-hour involuntary hold. Mm-hmm. The reason it was a mistake, and many other folks have attested to this as well, is that experience in and of itself is so traumatizing and stigmatizing that it leads to a lot of resistance to continued uh, therapy and help. Mm. April, is is that something that you encountered in in your reporting is this kind of the the, the treatment itself can cause uh, additional trauma and strain? Well, I think the kind of treatment that Mike is describing, you know, I have absolutely heard that from a lot of different people that if they've been hospitalized, they feel like their needs weren't really being met. They felt like um, they weren't being listened to or that they were getting treatments that, you know, weren't really right for mm-hmm. them. Mike, after the that experience of the mm-hmm. hospitalization, what did you what, what was your approach after that? Well, the hospital recommended uh, Felton Institute's program, mm-hmm. and so we enrolled our son in the program. And um, I will say that due to the stigma, it was it was difficult. He was not a that cooperative about coming. He was afraid somebody would see him walking in through the front door mm-hmm. and identify him as being psychotic. He was extremely paranoid about that, so he would sneak in the back way. Mm-hmm. But over time. The therapist, with care and compassion, eventually was able to build the trust to where the other interventions were were effective. And while he was at Felton, he enrolled in uh, junior college, community college, where he got an academic scholarship to transfer to a four-year university. Wow. And that's what he's up to now? Uh, he, um, after some ups and downs, I, I won't give you the, the long version sure. of it, but he just, uh, two weeks ago graduated, uh, with honors, uh, when, on the Dean's list, National Honor Society from, uh, that, uh, that program at, uh, University of Arizona. Wow. Well, thank you, Mike, for sharing your story and hopefully it's, um, you know, in- inspiring for other people to get the, the kind of help you were able to get your son. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. 
Um, let's bring in some callers here. Let's go to uh, Melody in Oakland. Welcome, Melody. Hey. Um, yeah, this is so hard. I have a relative who's experiencing psychosis. I'd say it's their, like, well, recently was their third, like, um, psychotic episode that was, like, dehabilitating and... I guess as their sibling and like, I'm just like, ah, I don't know hmm. what to do. I'm getting support, but, um, you know, I've like called Herrick, which is like a local program in Berkeley. And they're like, basically you have to take her to the ER to get her a referral hmm. over here. But she's so traumatized by the ER because of previous 5150s, which I could definitely say from our family's experience, like totally horrific, Mm. straight up violence. Like the police left horrible bruises on her body, like just just a really traumatic experience overall for everyone involved and especially my, Mm -hmm. my loved one. So, and it's just like, okay, so what do we do? Like, I wish there was someone who could just come to the house and like support her like a di- like a different level of care but they but at the moment it's sort of like no you have to convince this person that they need and deserve help and but but they're just like not really aware that that that's the case like they mm. um they're experiencing mania which my therapist told me is like this euphoric experience so everything feels great to them but also their life is totally crumbling Mm. and it's becoming more and more clear that uh this like level of dysfunction is like unsustainable it's becoming very clear to everyone around and then slowly clear to my loved one yeah Yeah. well um melody first of all thank you for for sharing the story and really difficult situation Tara Needham, I I wanted to ask you, for for someone like Melody, who's really running up against the very barriers to care that seem like uh, really typify trying to get help for for psychosis, like what what are the next steps? Yeah, uh, Melanie, thank you so much for for calling in. And I'm so sorry that you and your family are struggling with this. I I can see how your loved one's challenges are are having an impact on you, which is, again, why we want to support the family. Um, I think one of my questions, and this really goes to April's piece, is what sort of insurance does your loved one have? Because that is going to define what kind of care they may be able to get. Um, because I hear your concern about going to the ED, which as Mike pointed out is often what community providers suggest, but as you highlight Melody, this it's traumatizing and, and, um, can make things worse for, for some people. So what kind of insurance does your loved one have? Well, um, after their episode, like a few years ago, when they like, I think they were uninsured and then we got um we were told if they went with medical they could possibly like i don't know we we basically were like we had an experience with like one of the like mental like kind of like jail type spaces like here in the east bay that was like so terrible that we were like okay we like can't 
that can't happen again. We need to get them like not on Medi-Cal because like if so we went with Kaiser through Covered California. But now I actually did hear your program um, that came out like a couple weeks ago. The California Report magazine that April did. Yeah. That's right. It it was um, nice to hear in this moment. And and then I was like, damn it, we should have got on (laughs) Medi-Cal. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, thank you for representing the challenge that our families go through. I mean, this is such a sad example of exactly what our families struggle with. Like, do they, how do they pick a, like, um, a insurance carrier? And then once they do, then they realize, oh, wait, this doesn't allow me access to the type of services that my loved one needs. And I think one of the greatest disparities here is that if, Melody's loved one was experiencing cancer, it would not matter what coverage they had. They would be able through Medi-Cal, through Kaiser, through Blue Cross, whatever, to get the care that they need. But because their loved one is struggling with psychosis, they can't. Mm. And this for me, as a provider in my clinic serve, um, I have Medi-Cal in Sacramento County and a couple other counties, as well as commercial insurance. This is the disparity I see every day. Yeah. Melody, thank you uh, so much and, you know, our, our best to you and hope your loved one can get the help that, uh, that they need. Um, April, can you were able to talk to someone from the insurance industry. Can you tell us, like, what, what is on the private insurer side? What are they saying about why they're not covering as much as Medi-Cal? So there's a lot of history here. Um, you know, I would say the first reason they would give is, you know, insurers will say they only pay for services that are delivered by licensed clinicians, so a psychiatrist or a therapist, but they don't pay for services delivered by, say, a job coach or a family coach or a peer specialist, someone who's certified in what they do but doesn't have a clinical license. But there's also a whole history of inequity here. For a long time, insurance companies have paid for mental illness treatments at a level way below what they cover for physical illnesses. So some of it is actually institutional discrimination that we as a society are still Mm -hmm. trying to correct for. So in the case of early psychosis care, um, they won't pay for a kind of program like Adriana described that has the full scope care, the whole team looking out for every aspect of your life, um, because historically they say they don't do that. Hmm. Um, and so even though we have you know close to 80 studies that show that this full scope care is effective. Yeah. And we actually have a, a cut. A, this is Nick uh, Luizos uh, from the California Association of Health Plans, which represents companies like Anthem, Blue Shield, and Kaiser, uh, describing their perspective. Science evolves. Research evolves. There could be uh, evidence-based techniques that are better in the future. There is a lack of evidence of this model's long-term effectiveness. And so what Luizos is referring to there is, um, you know, even though we have close to 80 studies that show this is this treatment is effective, that it works. It keeps people in school. It keeps them in their jobs. It keeps them out of the hospital. But the treatment has only been around for about 10 or 15 years. So we don't have those kinds of, you know, long-term studies. But what advocates would sort of counter is, you know, do we need evidence that someone will still be alive 20 years after cancer treatment before we agree to give it to them? Mm, yeah. You know, Adriana, before we um, try and take some more calls, 
For people who might be listening, who might be worried about a family member, um, what are some of the signs that they might be looking for um, that their loved one needs help? Signs uh, can can be sudden, um, and the important uh, it's really important for family members to have as much information as possible because they may be the first ones to notice. Uh, and the young people, as an example, and when we think of adolescence, where so much goes on um, for uh, teenagers, uh, a young person who perhaps is doing well in school and for no apparent reason they start to struggle. Someone who was more outgoing or at least interacted at home, now they are isolating more uh, in their rooms or or not connecting with anyone, even with pets sometimes. Um, uh, Also increased sensitivity to light and sounds. So some of these sudden changes, uh, sometimes they they are present for quite quite some time. Uh, until they become uh, impairing in in more sense. It's not always that uh, someone who's starting to experience a psychosis that they will um, be able to articulate that they are hearing voices mm-hmm. or uh, hearing um, full sentences. They will often talk about seeing something at the corner of their eye or uh, hearing whispers or um, sounds, a wind. So there are these sudden changes. But one of the things that I think it's really important for us is to think that um, psychosis is a part of the normal human experience and understanding when there is this break uh, with reality and when life starts to become more difficult uh, is the key point here. And I, I think also to, to surround ourselves with information and and with, with other people as well mm-hmm. who uh, you can talk to when you notice some changes. Yeah. Let's bring in another caller. Let's go to Kelly in Oakland. Welcome, Kelly. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, I sure can. Go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to share that um, I was supporting a friend who um, was dealing with some psychotic symptoms, and um, we had a similar experience to what everyone else reported at the ER. It was a really horrible um, uh, experience. But then um, he lived near Sacramento, so we took him to this wonderful urgent public urgent care facility there that specifically is for mental health. Um, and it was a, actually a really completely different experience, and I wish that there were more uh, places. I think every county should have one of these where you can take somebody. They are treated with a lot of respect. It's a quiet space, and the doctors there really um, are specialized in understanding the difference between a situation that is urgent versus a situation that requires like a 5150 and really involves um, my friend and making the decision of whether or not they wanted to be hospitalized. And, um, you know, it was an all day experience, but we left at the end of the day, he was not admitted and he left with medication the same day so that he was mm-hmm. able to kind of continue in a much less coercive, less high stakes situation. I just wish that we had more of that. And I also wish that we had more, um, things like we have here in Oakland with the mental health, um, response teams mm-hmm. that people can call during certain hours instead of, um, instead of the police when people are really um, needing immediate assistance. Thanks so much. Kelly, thank you so much. Just um, by happenstance, we have another um, Kelly in Oakland. Let's bring Kelly in 
Hi. Um, I just wanted to thank April for this outstanding program. I actually heard it on my way of leaving Stanford Hospital, where my brother's on the other end. He's in his early 60s, had a, um, uh, another bout of psychosis because of his medication. Uh, there was a missed psychosis medication uh, for about a month, and it really spiraled him back into the hospital. But driving home from Stanford and listening to this incredible story was so enlightening to me. And I know it's to help others, but I found it to be educational, inspiring. And I actually took some of the messages from Yvonne about talking to your voices, which I found so mm-hmm. um, heartfelt and you know strategic on her part to talk to her voices and manage them and mentioned it to my brother later when visiting him. So I wanted to just compliment you because that is the type of story that helps people, helps families educate and destigmatize the serious illness. I also wanted to just uh, share with the audience that I would direct many people to NAMI as a starting point since family is so supportive and plays a significant role that NAMI um, California, NAMI chapters. Uh, it's the National the Alliance on Mental Illness. Right. Correct. And that is a great resource for families to get started, to get support and also advocacy, because mm-hmm. so much of what's missing in our mental health system, it's profound, uh, yeah. profoundly lacking. And so we need families to step up and be advocates for their loved ones uh, and for their community. So, so I just much, wanted to Kelly. share that with you. Thank yeah, you. no, thank you. And, and best of luck to you and your, your family. I want to thank you as well, uh, Kelly, for um, the the lovely shout out about the story. And I want to pass that shout out on to Yvonne and Sandy and Marie, the three um, young women that were featured in the story. They they really took a lot of risk to, um, you know, tell their stories. And even though we we took a lot of measures to protect their identities, it was still a nerve wracking process for them to you know, participate in this story. And it's comments like that, that, you know, hearing that their experience is helping others, um, hearing that, you know, some of the skills that they learned are, you know, getting passed on to help other people is what really makes it worth it for them. We've been talking about the importance of early wraparound intervention for people experiencing psychosis with April Domboski, health correspondent with KQED News, put together a beautiful report for California Report magazine on this topic. If you're struggling with it, go listen to it. We're so happy to bring more attention to it. This hour, we've also been joined by Adriana Furuzawa, early psychosis division director at the Felton Institute. Tara Neendam, Vice Chair for Research and Executive Director of the UC Davis Early Psychosis Programs. And earlier we had Mike, a family support specialist at the Felton Institute. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Thank you for joining us. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. 
And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.